Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour here on AmericaOutloud.com or wherever you might be watching or listening to this broadcast. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant, 34 years of police service, the author of A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety, and the founder of The Wounded Blue, the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers, a nationwide charity that works with injured and disabled officers across this country. Thank you for joining me on this show. This show is devoted to the physical, the emotional, mental, and spiritual health of America's law enforcement community. And we talk about all things law enforcement here. And before I bring in my, uh, my guest for the day, because I always have an interesting guest, and today is no exception, uh, I want to do what we call our reality check. Now, the assaults against law enforcement officers continues unabated. The violence that these men and women face literally every single day is startling. Quite literally, every day a police officer is shot in the line of duty. Yesterday, during the attack in the, uh, in the bank in Louisville, Kentucky, there were two more officers shot. One who literally just got out of the academy two weeks before and is fighting for his life with a gunshot wound to the head. And the other officer was treated and released. This was during the hostage or the active shooter situation in Louisville, Kentucky. You know, the uh, during this segment, I do what's called end of watch, where we memorialize those officers who in the previous week, the, uh, since our last episode, lost their lives in the line of duty. And unfortunately, I have four names to read today. The first is Detective Sergeant Nicholas Pepper of the LaForche Parish Sheriff's Office in Louisiana. Detective Sergeant Nick Pepper was killed when his vehicle was intentionally rammed by a suspect during a vehicle pursuit on Louisiana Highway 1 in Thibodeau at about 4 a.m. Deputies were assisting the Huma Police Department after officers attempted to stop the vehicle for a traffic violation. Officers and deputies pursued the vehicle until it stopped near LaForche Crossing. As officers issued commands to the subject, the man suddenly accelerated and intentionally drove into Sergeant Pepper's car. Sergeant Pepper was transported to the Thibodeau Regional Health System where he succumbed to his injuries. The suspect was arrested and charged. Sergeant Pepper served with the LaForche Parish Sheriff's Office for 15 and a half years. He had served in law enforcement for 24 years. He had previously served with the Huma Police and the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office. He is survived by his wife, two daughters, and a son. Detective Sergeant Nicholas Pepper, LaForche Parish Sheriff's Office, Louisiana. End of Watch Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. The next is police officer Hunter Timothy Scheel of the Cameron Police Department in Wisconsin. Police officer Hunter Scheel of the Cameron Police Department was shot and killed during a traffic stop at Wisconsin Highway SS and 13th Avenue in the village of Cameron at 3.38 p.m. Officer Scheel and another officer pulled over a vehicle for a warrant 
and welfare check on the driver. The subject was armed and gunfire was exchanged. Officer Scheel and the other officer were shot. The subject was transported to the hospital where he died as well. Officer Scheel was a United States Army National Guard veteran, served with the Cameron Police Department for just one year. He is survived by his mother, stepfather, father, and three sisters. Police Officer Hunter Timothy Scheel, Cameron Police Department, Wisconsin. End of watch Saturday, April 8th, 2023. Police Officer Emily Ann Breedenbach of the Chetik Police Department in Wisconsin. Police Officer Emily Breedenbach was shot and killed during a traffic stop, Wisconsin Highway SS and 13th Avenue in the village of Cameron, 3.38 p.m. She and Officer Scheel pulled over a vehicle for a warrant, welfare check of the driver, the subject was armed and gunfire was exchanged. The officers both succumbed to their wounds at the scene. She had served with the Chetak Police Department for over four years, previously served with the Slaughton Police. She is survived by her parents, brother, her fiance, and his four children. Police Officer Emily Ann Breedenbach, Chetik Police Department, Wisconsin. End of watch, Saturday, April 8th, 2023. And Senior Police Officer Trevor Abney of the New Orleans Police Department in Louisiana. Senior Police Officer Trevor Abney succumbed to complications from a gunshot wound sustained on October 30th, 2020. He and his partner were stopped at the intersection of St. Philip Street and Royal Street when a passenger in a passing pedicab opened fire on them without provocation. Officer Abney was struck in the left side of his face and his partner suffered cuts to his arm from the shattered windshield. The subject was apprehended after a foot chase through the French Quarter. He was charged with two counts of attempted murder. Officer Abney was transported to University Medical Center where life-saving measures were performed. Doctors were unable to remove the bullet which remained lodged in his brain and blinded him in the left eye. He succumbed to complications from this injury on April 9, 2023. Officer Abney was a United States Army veteran, served with the New Orleans police for seven years. He is survived by his wife and parents. Senior Police Officer Trevor Abney, New Orleans Police Department, end of watch, Sunday, April 9, 2023. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty for their communities. May they rest in peace. Now, before I bring in my guest, I want to talk to you about a company that I love. And I'm a coffee drinker. I love coffee. And I have uh, now worked with a, a amazing coffee company that helps injured and disabled officers. They have given so much to the wounded blue. And I want to tell you about them because I want you to buy their coffee too. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee, patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, uh, very, very good coffee. I w actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online. They bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee. You can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these... Uh, you know, the, the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee. Go to OneNationCoffee.com. Order your coffee, and uh, you'll get great coffee, and you'll be supporting 
uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue. So uh, go to OneNationCoffee.com. Now, I'm going to read to you the bio of my guest. And he and I have known each other for a number of years. And he's uh, he brings a, a really interesting perspective to law enforcement. His name is Lieutenant Joseph Pangaro. He served in law enforcement for 27 years. During that time, he had many positions. He spent most of his career in the investigative units, rising to the rank of lieutenant. In the position, he was charged with training for officers uh, for the department. Upon retirement, Lieutenant Pangaro started a private training company called Pangaro Training. This company offers training on all areas of law enforcement, from patrol level courses, detective courses, and supervisor courses. And he's also the author of a new book, and it's called The Interview, uh, a Pangaro Training Guide. And this is a pretty interesting um, uh, story about how he created this. So I'd like to welcome to the show Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. How are you, Randy? Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Sure thing, man. So let's talk about your history first. Uh, I want the audience who are listening and viewing this to get to know a little bit uh, about Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. Talk about your, uh, your uh, uh, history with law enforcement and your various assignments. Sure. When I came on the job, Randy, in 1986, seems like a thousand years ago, but the world was a different place. Uh, it was something that, uh, as, as a younger person, I was trying to decide, what am I gonna do with my life to try and make a difference? Uh, I could yell and scream at the TV, or I could try and find something that would allow me to, to try, at least, to make things better. Well, I had a relative in law enforcement, he used to tell me awesome stories about being in law enforcement and how much he liked it. And I said, well, you know, let me take a look. Let me give that a try. So I went out and I took a bunch of tests and well, actually, the first one that I took, I, I got hired. Next thing I know, I'm a police officer. Now, the town I'm from has very little crime. It's, it was quiet here as a kid. But the town I went to was uh, much bigger, and it had a, a hugely diverse uh, population of people, from very, very uh, underprivileged people to very, very wealthy uh, individuals and everything in between. And I got there, it was surrounded by other communities that had very serious crime problems. And of course, people come to where there are things to steal, so they came to our town. Uh, next thing I know, I'm, I'm involved in robberies, rapes, drug dealing, uh, homicides, all kinds of things that were just brand new to young Joe as I got out there in the road. But what I found is that I absolutely had an unbelievable love for this job, for the ability to do things to help the community, right? We all say that in the interview, we're getting hired. What do you wanna be a cop, Randy? Because I wanna help people, right? Well, I actually did get to help some people. And as time went by, I found that I had a niche. I had a way of, of being able to deal with people that I thought was, was helpful to, to my career. And I got put in the detective bureau. Now, after about seven or eight years, I went in there. And that is where my real love for the job took off. Uh, you know, as an investigator, I loved patrol work. It was immediate, it was fast, it was exciting. But the detective work was, was much more planned out. You had an opportunity to go deeper into a situation and get to talk to people. And this is what I started to realize over the years is that is really what our business is about. When I talk about law enforcement, I say, you know, the, the cars, the chases, the arrests, the guns, all that stuff, that's all tools of the job. The reality is that law enforcement is a very intimate business. It's a person-to-person -person business. We deal with people and information. And if you can extract information from people, 
you can do your job, you can be successful, you can bring justice into the world, which I was hoping to do. So that kind of brought me there. I spent my time investigating and, and loving every minute of it. Eventually, I got promoted to sergeant in the detective bureau uh, and then promoted to lieutenant where they said, okay, now we want you to take this experience. You're gonna go out and help co-command the patrol bureau and train the men and women out there. Matter of fact, you're gonna do training, Lieutenant Joe. And I said, okay, I like kicking doors, but let me see what I can do about this training uh, business. And it turned out that as we all know, when you go to police training, some of it is absolutely boring. There's no other way to put it. You sit there and you <laughs> listen to somebody pontificate for hours, they go on and on. And you walk out of there going, well, at least I wasn't in the office today. You know, I don't know. So I said, what can I do about this? Let me make it more interesting. So I started using role model, role players for, uh, for my officers. I brought in actors and they loved it. They really learned, they put hands on and, and, and it was a great experience to the point that I said, what can I do after retirement? Can I start aiming towards that? I had six or seven years to go and I started Pangaro training. And basically we started with two classes, a four day role player based narcotics investigation class we call hyperdrive narcotics, where I teach people about vetting an informant and guess what, an informant shows up and we have to vet them out and we start building a case. We follow people around, we make control buys and then the last day we, uh, we do a bunch of raids uh, using airsoft equipment. So they actually get to put, their, put themselves into the case, try and figure it out, interview people, do the right thing. So I started with that and crisis uh, intervention. That has led to 51 different titles that we now teach. I have other instructors that come in. In the pandemic, uh, we, we, everything was shut down. The whole world was shut down. So we started teaching remotely. So now I teach officers across the entire United States and we still use our role models, the role players. They pop on and, and interact with everybody. And that, uh, that kind of brought me to where I am today. Uh, along that route, I started writing. You know, I started writing and I started a newspaper column in a local newspaper here. It was called Behind the Badge. And it was uh, really for civilians to understand what we do as cops. What's it like to work on a holiday? What's it like to have to deal with a, a victim who's a child or, or an elderly person? And it really, it kind of took off. And that led me to believe that, hey, maybe you can write some other things. So I started. Right, I'm, I'm going to stop you there because I want to. Yeah. I want to go back to the uh, the beginning of your your uh, training career. You know, um, sure. one of the things that that um, you know we we had similar career paths in that uh, I became the sergeant in charge of advanced training for the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department after I had about oh 12 years in, and I found that the training was a. a I didn't, I didn't anticipate enjoying it as much as I did, and it it's an entirely different part of policing, though. So you were now, uh, you know, in your more mature um, career uh, years as uh, as a law enforcement officer when you were thrust into this kind into into this uh, role, correct? And absolutely, did you did you not find that there was a depth that you learned from being a trainer that you didn't anticipate, and that it it, it and how did that affect your your consciousness for your career? Well, I, I think that only another trainer would understand that, Randy. So that's a great question because you're right when you when you have to teach other people something. 
you, you don't, you know, a lot of times we know things innately. We know how to do a certain topic or, or we know how to do it, run, run a case a certain way. But when you have to teach other people, now you got to really pull this apart. You know, what is the essence of what I'm trying to teach? What are the important parts? What's the fundamental? What's the extras? And that really helped me to understand my background of, of why I did what I did and then find a way to bring that to people. And it was very satisfying. You know, I didn't expect it to be. But it really was when you see these 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 young officers, these men and women go out and they do something, they come back and say, hey, Lou, that was great. I did this because uh, you were showing us how to, you know, look for this hidden compartment. And I found one. You know, it's it was really a wonderful thing to do. When you uh, became a trainer and did your department embrace training or, as you know, one of the things that that. Uh, law enforcement trainers around the country are often being hampered by a lack of resources. You know, we all talk about, oh, we need to be trained, we need to be trained. But then you're given this incredible burden of the mandatory training that these officers are forced to have, some of it being on a political agenda, unfortunately. But there are limited resources. So did your department embrace that training and give you the resources you needed or were you constantly fighting for resources well i i would say it would be a yes and no i was told that training is the most important thing that we should do that training train we were in the middle of accreditation and they really wanted us to train hard and and i thought it was great and i had 70 75 officers depending on the time of year uh, and they would say well here's forty thousand dollars and you're gonna try and properly train 75 people on $40,000, it's really very difficult. And when <laughs> yeah. you say the mandatory stuff, we would have we would have an in-service day and the whole day would be taken up by three or four topics that we do several times a year. And we should be doing real hands-on things. We should be going out and, and practicing stuff where officers get killed. So what I got them to agree to do was they I took a lot of the, uh, the mandatory courses and I recorded them on video with a written lesson plan and the whole nine yards. And then the officers were given the opportunity to watch it, you know, between January 1st and June 31st, you have to watch this video. It's available in the conference room, take the test and move on. And then on my training days, I could do what I want. Then I took that money and I could use that for supplies. We bought a whole bunch of airsoft equipment and we could actually do shooting scenarios. We could do danger scenarios, active shooter responses. And I found that they were very supportive in that. They let me change the schedule all around, whatever I had to do to get people in. But that is a problem for many, many agencies. They don't have the money and they don't have the time. I, I see it all. I see it constantly when I talk to them. Well, that, and now that you're in the industry of training, you you get a much larger perspective of what's going on around the country. And that's where, this is where I'm, I want to lead you to. So there has been so many changes within the law enforcement uh, community in the last, say, eight years. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put it back in the Obama in the Obama years, because that's where we began to see the sea change uh, when it came down to the, the disrespect of law enforcement. Uh, we saw it at the beginning of the Obama years, and it has continued, um, you know, through to where we are today. And that has severely affected 
what law enforcement officers are being trained on. You've seen this, uh, you know, because you've been part of this this system for many, many years. So the other day, um, just yesterday and then last week, we saw active shooter situations where police officers were being called upon to utilize their training and literally run towards the gunfire. Um, in, the, in the Nashville incident, the officers reacted very quickly. They um, confronted the school shooter who had killed six people and took her out with no loss of life to law enforcement. Um, yesterday in the, in the shooting in Louisville, Kentucky, unfortunately, two officers were shot. Um, there were more people killed, and of course, the shooter was killed as well. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we have been training in active shooters for a number of years now because the, 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 um, the tactics have changed dramatically. What we used to teach was wait until SWAT got there, and then, of course, Columbine changed all that. And now it's we, we train to go in and, and face the gunfire. That is... That requires the warrior spirit. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Because it's my belief as a trainer and also as a cop and a commentator that warrior having the warrior spirit means not that you're at war all the time, but yet when you need to have that courage to go in and face that armed foe, you have the ability to do it. You have trained yourself. You have been trained to have that warrior spirit. And yet, we have seen that, that very topic being torn apart by a lot of uh, high-level uh, Department of Justice uh, people, uh, by, by police chiefs who have adopted a more woke attitude. And I want to get your opinion on the warrior spirit and how it relates to the survivability for our cops. Well, I think that's a conversation that needs to be in part of every officer, every agency's uh, daily conversation. And I think and that's how these things embed themselves, Randy, is that if, if we talk about what is the sacrifice you may have to make, what, what is it are you willing to do? Are you prepared mentally? I remember when I first started teaching active shooter response, and at the time, people out in the world, they think cops are trained to kill. Oh, you're trained to kill, cops trained to shoot to kill. That, that's not what we're there for. We, we try to use every amount of restraint we possibly can, unless we have to use force. And I had to train these young men and women who, who were there to do good, to save people, to help that if there's an active shooter incident, you have to run into the sound of that gunfire, you have to ignore some, some child laying on the floor screaming for their mother, you have to jump over them and go to the shooter because you have to stop that because every, every second is another person being, being killed. And that wasn't easy to explain. This might be the opportunity where your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your significant other, mother, father gets that folded up flag. You have to be prepared mentally to understand this is your duty. This is why you wear the gun. This is why you have the oath and you wear the badge. You are trusted to do these things and we have to wrap our heads around it. And it's, it was a messaging that I gave constantly 
because I knew at some day one of these young men or women might be called into a situation that people tell you it's, it's oh you got to you're not afraid no it, it's afraid but you go anyway that is what courage is even though something's afraid you have a duty and you go forward i think of our military people you know uh, over the years fighting the battles that they did it had to be horrifying scary on the battlefield but they did it when i watched those uh, officers from from nashville go charging into that building that was inspiring and they had the warrior spirit they they went and the guys that were calling them out, leading everyone forward, pushing them forward, giving the, giving the commands, it was, it was inspiring uh, to see that. But to instill that spirit in people is something that it doesn't help when society is against the cops the way they are. It does not help uh, that society talks, about, you know, talks down, that they're all doing bad things and they're out there. But this is messaging that has to come from the chief on down, that this is an honorable, this is a noble profession and it's worthy of your passion and your life. This is an important thing to do in a society where we, we value life and we value justice. And, and that's what law enforcement is about. So I, I include that message in a lot of the things that I talk about when I teach and train. Uh, I came across the, a concept along this line. Again, it's the same thing. No one ever teaches a supervisor. You were a supervisor. I was a supervisor. No one has given any kind of a class ever on how do, how do they train you and me to order someone to their death? Yeah. Well, we know be, they have to right, go do their I, job. I, 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 need to, I, need to, I need to take a hard break right now, and we'll be back in just sure. a second. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution, the miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. 
Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. You know, every every product that I talk about here at the Wounded Blue Hour is uh, it, it concerns the safety of law enforcement officers. And I want to tell you about a company called OfficerPrivacy.com. Uh, I was introduced to this company by the founder, who is, of course, a retired uh, police officer and uh, named Pete James. And Pete created this company. He was involved deeply in the uh, in in the uh, internet aspect of investigations. But what he found was that there are incredible amounts of information on the internet about you and about me and how easily we can become compromised and our safety become compromised by what is out there on the internet. And when he showed me, when, when officerprivacy.com showed me, there, were, there was like 35 references to my private address that, that were all over the internet. Well, that makes me really nervous. So what officerprivacy.com does is their whole staff is made up of, of officers who are either active or, or prior experience. No, no, uh, no one that, is, that has not been a cop works for them. And they go on the internet and actually remove these references to you. Now this is really important stuff. This is about, about your, your personal safety, your family safety, and it's not expensive. It's, they, they work their butts off to get this done. I mean, I can tell you, uh, they, they have showed me what they do. And I'm really, really <clears throat> um, proud that they, they are a supporter of the Wounded Blue. And I want you to check them out, officerprivacy.com. Uh, this is something that you should do for yourself and your family. <coughs> so let's bring Joe back in. Joe. Um, having watched the changes that have occurred towards law enforcement, um, especially in the last couple of years since since the riots, the George Floyd, uh, Michael, uh, uh, the the Ferguson nonsense, um, we've seen a, a a major shift in the way law enforcement officers have been trained. I mean, they're being trained now. I mean, just precious training hours are being 
sucked up into diversity training, into pronoun training, into all this politically correct insanity. And at the and and but what's falling behind and even being ignored completely is the life-saving training that these officers need. And that includes what I call the warrior spirit. Now, what have you seen since, you know, you've watched the trajectory in the last few years? Are you seeing this reluctance on the part of law enforcement administrators to actually train their cops to survive? Yeah. Um, in the fact that when I talk to these officers from all across the country, uh, when we do the online training uh, in person, one of the questions I always ask is I want to understand the pulse of what's going out there in, in law enforcement. And I say, are you being as proactive as you used to be? And they say, no, no, not at all, because, uh, you know, uh, my department's not going to back me up. They expect me to go out and, and be proactive and protect the community. But if I do, <clears throat> I can get locked up for doing my job. I, I can lose my pension. I, you know, all somebody has to do is complain, uh, and I'm the one who is wrong. And that's that is really prevalent, yeah. and it's really unfortunate because anybody that understands handling crime knows that only uh, aggressive, proactive police work is what keeps a community safe. Without that, when we back off, like we're seeing. You see this rise in crime across the nation. You can't go into some of these cities. It is it is violent. It is terrible. And the officers that you mentioned today that, that made the greatest sacrifice. These these are people out there trying to do what's good for their community. And without that backup, uh, I'm definitely seeing a pullback by people. They're doing what they have to do. They always do their job. But uh, you know, back in the day when you'd look around and try and find some bad guys uh, to prevent crime. There's not so much of that going on, um, and that's unfortunate for all of our society. But the administrators, yeah, sometimes they do send messages. Um, I know a couple of departments that were very aggressive, and they got some new leadership, and that leadership is like, hey, listen, do your job, but don't overdo your job, because I don't want to be uh, hauled into court. I don't want to have all these other problems. And that's not how you police a community. It's not how you make people safe. We're seeing... Now, tell me if you agree with me. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I view this as a crisis of leadership within law enforcement, that we are seeing police chiefs and, and in some cases sheriffs, but mostly police chiefs, being put into their positions, not so much because of their great leadership capabilities, but because they're checking off a box that uh, that is more politically inclined. And so as a result of that, we are seeing police leadership that is that is uh, more politically active when it comes down to making decisions regarding their officers. And I view this as a crisis in leadership. How do you view it? Well, I would have to agree with you, uh, and you can break that down into a lot of different things. We look and we see the, the position of chief uh, is is highly political position. You're picked. You're a, you're a leader in the community. You're you're working with usually the political faction in your community, the mayor's office or whatever, and you are that uh, that go-to person when when there's a problem. And therefore, you have to walk a fine line 
as a, uh, as a chief administrator. When we take a look at the sheriffs and the leaders we see down in Florida, here is where you see, God bless you, we see Thank some you. powerful individuals that are willing to stand up and say what needs to be said and to have their officers actually do the work that needs to be done because they get backing from the political class. If you don't have that, if you have a community that's telling you, first of all, everything you do is wrong, everything you do is bad, you're all kinds of problems, you better knock it off. Well, you know that that's that's a no win. How am I going to deal with that? As opposed to, uh, and again, I, I referenced the uh, couple of sheriffs down in Florida that come right out and say it like it is. They tell the criminals, hey, you know, you you pulled a gun on a cop. What do you think was going to happen to you? You know, so uh, I think it's it is a highly political position. Uh, but I think strength is what's really needed. I think these leaders, if I, if I could sit them down in a room and say, let me give you a piece of advice from uh, one of the, the, the ground workers and then a citizen and someone who looks at this, standing up for what's right, doing the right thing by your men and women of your agency and of your community is the best thing you can do as a leader. And sometimes you gotta make choices as a leader to do what's right or to take the expedient path. So along that way, I'd have to agree with you. It is a crisis of leadership if we don't have uh, men and women in those positions that are willing to do what's right and you know, in, in face of the politics. You know, and, and in, in defense of, of, of some of the decisions that we've seen made by police chiefs that are, that to me go way, way, way far in an area where they shouldn't go. They are literally at the mercy of their either their mayor or their city council, and they are all appointed positions. And literally, they can be fired just for you know not not towing the company line. So you got we you have to understand, I guess, that they're in a position where they have to walk a really fine path. And if they don't follow the politics, then they then they're out the door. But at what point do yeah. you, you know, what point do you say, I have to, I have to do the right thing, you know, and, and mm -hmm. I think we've seen, we've seen some chiefs that are willing to fall on their sword for their people, but all too often, I think I've seen just the opposite. I've seen police chiefs who, uh, who decide to follow the political expediency path and safeguard their own their own careers, if you will, and um, I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. I mean, you know, I look and I see some of the morale issues that that um, I, I've been, you know, brought up on from officers who talk to me about their feelings about being a cop. And we're seeing, you know, this crisis play out in the lack of of uh, recruitment that is that is basically a crisis around this country, and also retaining mm -hmm. their officers. We're seeing. Uh, I just read a, a headline yesterday that that blew my mind. There's a a, a police department that is offering a seventy five thousand dollar signing bonus. If you're an experienced cop now you don't get it for a couple of years but that is mind-boggling the things have degenerated to the point where a, a city has to basically bribe someone to
to become a cop. When you and I joined the department, there were thousands of people that wanted the job. And now yeah. we're seeing, so so we're seeing the, 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 this crisis play out in a lot of different ways, but I think it really comes down. And this is why I, the training portion of, of law enforcement is so vital and is and plays such an integral role in in the success or failure of not only a police career individually but a a police department's effectiveness so what do you see yeah. what do you see in the future how are these police agencies going to be responsive and fill their ranks with cops who should be cops and not not mm -hmm. not take not not uh, taking the standards and diminishing them but how are they going to accomplish their mission and train their people properly All right well your your question your lead up to the question Randy really gives its answer if you, if you if you tear it apart when you had a huge pool of candidates to choose from, you could, you could really vet them out and choose the people that you think would really fit the position well. When you have limited number of people coming in you're, and you need to have officers, you're hiring whoever can get through the process. Now, in many instances, those will be great, great people, great men and women. But we also know that if we don't have a lot of people to choose from, we're taking whoever wants the job and uh, we can't vet them the way we should, then we're gonna have problems in the future. It's gonna, it's gonna damage our profession because you, you can't vet them. One of the programs that I, I out, of a, out of a lark, I realized we had to hire a bunch of officers. Uh, we had a big, huge turnover. And me and the detectives in our unit were given tons of backgrounds. And you know, have these done by next week, we have to hire. Well, you can't do a background in a week. <laughs> right. And I had multiple backgrounds. So I put together a program called pre-employment background investigations. And I try to codify the things that I thought were important character traits about someone who would be a good police officer. It is one of our number one classes. We get people from all over the place going, we're trying to hire good people. How do we pick them? Well, you can't just go by the application. So that is extremely important. But I do want to go back to your first part of your question there for, for a second, if I may. When you said, you know, where do you, where do these leaders make a decision? Well, the reason that you're addressing me as Lieutenant Joe and not Captain Joe or Chief Joe is because I was put in that position to make a decision. My career or do what's right. And I was always an ambitious person. I was always a very ambitious guy. But once I got into that role of leadership, I think I started to understand the impact you have on people and the responsibility you have to people. So my whole thing became a, a practice of servant leadership. I always believed the higher I go in any organization, the more I owe to the people below me, not to me, to them. And that became something that just took over my understanding of leadership. And I had to make choices. I had to either stand with bad decisions that were made by leadership or stand up for my men and women, and I did. Uh, and it was made very, very clear to me that if I didn't hold the line, you're going to end your career really nice as Lieutenant Joe, or you can join the team 
and uh, and you'll probably get out of here maybe as the chief. And I had to make a decision. You know, did you ever see the movie um, It's a Wonderful Life? Uh, sure. George Bailey's in the room with Mr. Potter and he goes to shake his hand to make that deal and he can't shake the hand. I had that moment and I had to realize that I've been blessed with this career. And if I'm in this position of leadership, it is my responsibility to do the right thing. And the right thing means to do what's right for the men and women that I was given to, to help, to lead, to mentor, to supervise. And I don't think a lot of people make that decision. I don't think they do. I try to instill that in everyone who comes to my leadership class. This is a big responsibility. This is not for you to be aggrandized and for you to, oh, do what I say because now I'm in charge. This is about helping the people who are in the lower ranks to you to do what is right each and every day, even if it's a sacrifice for you. And you that's, know, isn't that what our profession really is? Sacrifice? Yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoy hearing this, even though I know that, the, that it brought personal pain to you, because if you had, if you had gone the way that, that uh, many people choose to in their ladder climbing, because that's really what it is, there are those who are ladder climbers. And they'll take a test. They're really good at taking tests. And they'll climb that corporate ladder. Uh, and that's what's important to them. It's really not, it's not the, the people below them that they are, that they are beholden to, as you, as you so eloquently put. Uh, but it's all about them. And although, you know, we see that in private industry, it, it's, it's, a, it's a personality trait, and we see that. But we would want to, in, in, in the public sector, in law enforcement, we would like to believe that the leadership of these agencies is more concerned with the people that are being served and the people who are doing the serving, as opposed to their own political ambitions and power. But the reality is different. The reality is what you have just, um, uh, you know, talked about with, with your own career. And, and I understand it. Uh, I've seen it play out time after time after time on, on agencies that I have worked with, as well as agencies that, um, you know, I'm, I'm acquainted with, shall we say. And I don't think there's any we can only we can only try and through training, and this is why training is so important. It is through that training from the beginning of a police officer's career that we can instill in them the values that that are so necessary for for a, a an effective leader and a compassionate leader, an empathetic leader. You know, someone that embodies what leadership is all about. And I, I know this as well, that you have run into police leaders that have been an inspiration to you. Is that, is that, is, am I accurate Absolutely in that? Absolutely true. I, I've met men and women that really modeled behavior for me that was, that led to that whole understanding of servant leadership. They were there for their men and women and regardless of what was in it for them, they chose to do right. And, and you're right. There was, there's penalties to that. You know, you don't end up with a higher rank, but I'll tell you what, I sleep like a baby every single night that I know I, I did the best I could. 
I did the best I could. And I always tried to remember what would, what did I say when you're young and you're sitting there, hey, if I ever get to be in charge, I'm not going to forget this. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I can never forget those things. I tried to always remember them. And then, sure, it would be much more convenient to now just be the guy in charge and tell everybody what to do or to actually serve them and make sure they uh, thrive and do really well. And I sleep like a baby. You know, uh, I would have loved to have retired as a captain or a commander or a, a chief or whatever. But I love the uh, moniker of lieutenant. I'm very proud that I attained that rank and I'm proud that I did the right thing. And that would be my that would be my comments to these future leaders, people who are watching here uh, and they're saying, you know, they're going to make a choice because we're all going to make that choice. What are we going to do? Right or personal? You're much better off doing the right thing and helping those people and enjoying watching their rise. I, nothing, nothing feels better to me to this, to this day than to see those young men and women who came up behind me that I helped, that I was a brick in their foundation and to see them exceed everything I ever did, you know, because that's, that's an amazing thing to have helped another person like that. And that's, that's what leadership is. And that's what we need in our agencies, especially now when our cops are suffering uh, under, under the situation that they're in now, expected to do this and that and, and worried every minute somebody could ambush them, kill them, uh, take their job from them, put them in jail for doing their work. Um, we need that in our leadership. So stand strong, everybody, do what's right, and you'll be the next wave of great leaders. You know, part of leadership is, is training. And, um, and you've devoted your life to training. So even in your retirement, you are working 24-7 to help police officers throughout this nation. So talk about a little bit about, um, you have a new book that came out. Talk, tell me about the book and about how, I know you, you um, vacillated a little bit in exactly what you wanted this book to be, but it, it created its own path. So let's talk about your new book. Sure, I appreciate it. Well, the newest one, um, what we said we created was a series, a Pangaro Training Guide series, because I, I had written a, a massive tome, this very, very large thing that covered multiple areas of law enforcement. And, and then when you get to a publisher, they tell, oh, that's great, but we can't put out a 4,000-page book. Uh, <laughs> so how do, we, how do we break this down? So the first book, as you mentioned, was the interview. Um, the interview is, it is a realistic way of talking to people that will help you obtain the information you need. Because like I said in the beginning, everything is about information in law enforcement work. Uh, and that was successful. And I'm, I've, I've heard from so many people that it has helped them. So when the publisher said, okay, what are you going to do next, Lieutenant Joe? I said, well, here's what I'm thinking. I'm going to do a book about conducting a criminal investigation, whether you're a patrol officer, detective or supervisor. These are very important things, no matter what the crime is, uh, you know, from homicide all the way down to anything that affects anybody. It's important that we do it right and we do it properly. So I started writing a how to conduct an investigation report, a book. And then I said, you know, that can be a little dry, maybe. How can I make this more interesting? So my concept was uh, I had been involved in a very high profile uh, double homicide, brutal double homicide uh, that involved some of the most horrific things you can imagine. First of all, the, the family that was involved were real uh, mobsters. They were real organized crime family, absolutely genuine family. Um, the, the kid who did the killing was in his 30s. I call him a kid, but everybody to me is a kid now. Uh, he was in his 30s and he killed the mother of his child 
He killed his 88-year-old grandmother. He cut their head, hands, and feet off. Um, and then he was going to stage it like a mob hit. And, and it, was, it was horrific to be a part of. Um, but what I decided to do is I said, hey, why don't, why don't I mix two things? Why don't I tell the story of that crime and then break it up into teaching components? So the way I wrote it was I wrote it like a, like a, like a novel, like a story. And I open it up and I tell you where the bad guy went from and how he got to the house where he killed everybody. And I tell that like a novel. Then I say, now let's stop. Let's go back and look as investigators. And we had to track this guy's movements with what I just told you in that part of the story. Where would we look? What could we find? How could we find where he moved across the state to get to where he went? And I cover all that. Then I said, okay, now let's go back to the story. Now he's at the house. Let's tell him about going in the house and he commits these horrific crimes and what he does. Uh, and as he comes out, unfortunate for him, uh, he got arrested as he came out. Uh, a guy he knew from high school was a cop and there happened to be a call about a disturbance and he shows up and here's this guy comes out of the house covered in blood, bone, chunks of meat and the cop snatches him up and puts him in the car and I say, now let's stop. Now let's go back. You're the investigator. Let's look at this crime scene from where the car was parked to the neighborhood to the house, to the each room where these people were murdered. And how would we, how would we piece together a case here? The evidence, uh, the forensics, the photography, everything that would go into that. Uh, and then now he's arrested. Now let's take him to the headquarters and I'll tell you the story about how he, how he ended up uh, confessing and then how he went to trial. And one of the things he did, he decided that he was going to go with an insanity plea. And he grew his hair out and he told everybody he was Jesus. And that's why he killed these people because he was fighting the devil. And he came to court turning over tables and blessing everybody and this and that. Uh, and of course, it didn't work out for him and he went to prison. But I, I took this whole story, this really sweeping story, true story, and broke it up into parts to use it as a teaching vehicle. Uh, and what I did is I, the, the publishers loved the idea. It's never been done before for a law enforcement training book. Uh, we sent it out to beta readers and the feedback has been really great. So it's called The Investigation uh, and it's from my publisher, which is Blue 360 Media. Uh, they're a huge nationwide publisher. They publish all kinds of law enforcement and legal legal books and manuals. Uh, but they cover The Interview, which is my first book. And now this is The Investigation from Blue360Media.com. It is a uh, soup to nuts, how to conduct a good quality investigation uh, every officer, I think, can learn from. And my feedback's been, been very uh, very heartwarming to hear from these cops that, hey, I wish I had this when I first started. I wish I had this when I went in the detective bureau, all that kind of stuff. So that's, it's, it's another way to give back. It's another training. And, and, and you're right, it does become part of who you are. If you're a trainer and you want to give back, I think of all the men and women who came before me, I think of you and when the things that you're doing and how inspirational that is for me to see you taking your platform. And I've told you this a hundred times before. You know, you're Lieutenant Randy, you're this big guy out there. And what are you focusing on? Helping people, right? That's inspirational. And I think that's as leaders and as trainers, that's what we can be, inspirational. And that's really the whole idea of me writing these, these books, the Pangaro Training Series, is to help the young men and women of law enforcement be the best that they can possibly be. So right. if everybody wants to get a good read, go take a look, Blue 360 Media, the interview, and now the investigation. Fantastic, man. You're doing great work. Um, we're running out of time. Uh, you know, in essence, what you are doing is you're leaving an incredible legacy. You're leaving a legacy of knowledge, 
of of care. Um, that, I mean, when when you're talking about um, all the the hard work that you're doing, you could be sitting on a beach in Miami collecting your pension and smoking cigars and drinking whiskey, uh, but you're not doing that. You're out there still in the mix. You're working your butt off, and you're uh, you're accomplishing. So, Joe, thanks so much for being. A guest here uh, on uh, on the show and uh, talking about all the amazing work that you're doing. My guest, Joe Pangaro. Thank you very much, Randy. To you and to everybody at the Wounded Blue that's helping our brothers and sisters. Kudos to you as well, my friend. Thanks, Joe. Well, as we wrap up, um, I ask you to do uh, something for me, and that is, I would ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. Thewoundedblue.org is the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. If you are a law enforcement officer, we are holding the most incredible training conference that that you will ever attend. It's gonna be in Las Vegas, no, uh, September 26th to the 29th. It's called the third annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. And I gotta tell you, there is no better training in the country for how to survive a law enforcement career from physical, tactical, emotional, psychological, relationships, financial, spiritually. If you're a police officer, spend the time, see if your department will send you, it's only $295 for four days, that includes your meals, uh, and it's going to be at the Ahern Hotel September 26th through the 29th. You want to be at this. And we encourage you to bring your spouse because there's there's uh, training for them as well. So go to thewoundedblue.org, scroll down to the National Law Enforcement Survival Summit, and reserve your spot now. Do not wait. This is amazing training with some of the best trainers in the country. So thanks for joining me here today at the Wounded Blue Hour. And uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. This is Randy Sutton. And uh, stay safe. We'll see you soon.